Welcome everyone to the Kaderna Podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. If you haven't checked out my brand new book titled, What Should I Do With My Money? Economic Insights to Build Wealth Amid Chaos, you need to get on it. You all know I'm a big fan of economics. It impacts every decision we make, large and small. And after reading my book, I think you'll find even a lot more takeaways from this show. In today's episode, we dive right into economics with my guest, Jorge Olson. Jorge is the co-founder and chief marketing officer of two publicly traded companies, Hempaco and Green Globe International. Olson was born in Tijuana, Mexico without running water or electricity. Now he's the author of multiple books and an internationally recognized authority on consumer packaged goods, beverages, and wholesale distribution. His business partners include the likes of James Lindsay, Cheech and Chong, Rick Ross, and the one and only Snoop Dogg. In this wide-ranging conversation, we cover everything from migration at the border, how to win the war on drugs, entrepreneurship, and how the American dream is still alive from Jorge's own rags-to-riches story. Here we go with Jorge Olson. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. Podcast. When did you first come here to the States? That's, that's a, a, a tricky question because I live on the border. I live in okay. on the border of San Diego and Tijuana, which the cities are like a pancake, like two pancakes, I, I would say. And the border, it's just a syrup between them. <laughs> uh, back in the day when I was a child, you could cross the border with it wasn't politicized you can cross the border without even an id you would go to the movies and you would say i'm just going to the movies okay that's fine i'm just going to mcdonald's i'm just going to the mall no passport needed so that's the world i grew i I grew up in tijuana san diego at the border so i lived in tijuana all my life let's say that officially officially i i I learned that I was an American citizen when I was 17 because my father is American. Therefore, the Olsen and the Jorge. Okay. My father is an American. My mom ran away from my father because he was abusive and she was afraid he would be abusive with me. So she actually had to run away. So I never met my father until I had to look for him because according to U.S. law, I was so old by then that I have to look for my dad and he has to sign. Yes, I am this kid's father. It wasn't enough to have the birth certificate. Okay. So I had to track him down when I was 17 and I to come to the U S and study. Wow. And so just to clarify, were you born an American citizen? I was born as an American citizen. However, I was born in Tijuana. Okay. The U S law states, one of your parents is American, you you automatically have American or U.S. citizenship. It's called derived citizenship. So if your parents yeah. are traveling in Paris uh, for vacation and mom's pregnant and has a baby, that baby's still a U.S. citizen. Got it. Okay, perfect. And just to clue our reader or listeners in, so what time frame was this? Because I'm sure a lot of folks are hearing you could just kind of bounce back and forth, like you said, to go catch a movie. And yes. now all you see on the news every day is, you know, border security and yes. and just it's such a contentious issue. Uh, what time frame was that that you were 
kind of living that that carefree lifestyle. Sure. Well, the the border starting getting really strict after 9-11. So anything mm-hmm. before 9-11 was very relaxed. After 9-11, even if you were an American citizen with your driver's license, et cetera, you needed your U.S. passport to cross the border. Before 9-11, it was the other way around. They couldn't deny you entry into your own country as a constitutional right. Hey, I'm an American. How can you deny me entrance into the country? So that was before 9-11. Since the country was born until 9-11, 9-11, it changed. And now you needed an ID. So everything changed completely. So really, it wasn't so long ago for my age group that this happened at the border. Now, when I was just crossing to the movies, that was probably 35, 40 years ago that it was completely relaxed. With the drug trade, it started getting less relaxed. And then 9-11, it just became crazy, the amount of security that was there. Got it. And now currently you're living in San Diego, correct? Yes. I live in San Diego. To, To answer your first question correctly, Mm-hmm. I I started coming just for entertainment, but then when I decided to come to college, that's when I came to the U.S. Now, I cross the border every day for, for yeah, almost the entirety of my college life. I would still commute. So it was a about a four-hour commute each way to go to college. Okay, great, great. And so, I mean, how has it changed? Because I think everybody just kind of sees the news and or, or there's some maybe a- anecdotes or what they call it on social media. Like, are you back in Tijuana much nowadays? And I mean, what is I mean, from just where you're at now, like, what would you define the border as today here in 2023? Right now, the now when I grew up, Tijuana was safe. That was the other thing that's very important. As a child, it was safe. Mm-hmm. Something interesting that happens, but the Arellano family was the family in control of, of Tijuana. It was a $12 billion institution per year that they made. So they patrolled the city with their own police. Now, they were dressed as police, regular police, but they had new trucks. So you knew they, they were the, the Arellano or the narco police. There was no crime in Tijuana when I was a child. There was kidnappings for children, but then the the Arellano family kind of kicked them out as well. And I and I know because I, I uh, somebody tried to kidnap me when I was four. So uh, oh I have a lot of stories, right? But that happened early <laughs> on in, in my life. After that, you, you you didn't have to lock your door. It was so safe. So I didn't have a lock on my door until I was maybe 16. I used to close the door with the newspaper to hold it closed. Uh, It was that safe. My mom would leave her purse in the car windows down. It was that safe. Uh, As I became a teenager, it started becoming very unsafe. And then when the U.S. government captured the Arellano family, it was the the dangerous city in the world. It became the, the most dangerous city in the world. Now, uh, the food is fantastic. We have an office in a factory in Tijuana where we make hemp paper, rose petal paper for smoking. 
it is Tijuana is safe, especially for tourists. There's some, there's some misunderstanding a lot of times with the news. There's no there's no profit in doing any bad things to tourists, so they mm -hmm. they try to stay away. Lately, uh, there was a, a kidnapping of U.S. citizens, the first one in maybe thirty years. It was a mistake, and then the 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 people who did it were by the by the narcos they sent them to the police which is strange but they sent it to the police immediately they said no nope, you did you did wrong you're not supposed to mess up with mess, mess with tourists and boom next day they were at the police station really at the border what you see in the tijuana san diego border you see a lot of tourism especially culinary tourism and art tourism tijuana is now a hub for art music and food the food is fantastic wine country is in baja california it's full of tourists of american and canadian tourists as well as national tourism uh, europe tourism so a lot of chefs from all over the world are coming to tijuana and to baja california to experience this culinary new culinary tradition that exists now so that's what you that's have great. now now what you see in the news is people washing the border and uh, several other things. Uh, I, I've never seen that in my life. I, there's probably one highlight that they keep running and running because I cross the border about every week and I've never seen anything like what I see in the news. Yeah. Now, let me tell you what's, what's the big problem. It's the border weight. That's the big problem that we have because before people would cross very quickly. And when I say quickly, about an hour wait. Now it can be four or five hours to wait to come and shop in the U.S. So that's a yeah. problem for the economy. Sure. Yeah, it's not really worth waiting. And just to take a step back, and we'll certainly get into your business journey, but I think this really sets the stage. So, and I don't want to mispronounce the name of the family that was patrolling and really had total control of Tijuana, but you said that the yeah. U.S. had essentially kicked them out of Tijuana. Did I catch that part correctly? They 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 ordered his capture. So they, okay. the U.S pressured it. Um, he was the most wanted person in the U.S. by the FBI. This is the Arellano family. And you can see it now on Netflix, the, the several, one of the several medical programs that they have is about this family. So when I grew up, they were in power, the, the, the Arellano family. You would go to the taco stand and eat tacos standing up uh, in a street vendor and you would and, and the person next to you would be one of the Arellano family members eating tacos there like nothing. So yep. they weren't afraid of being captured. It wasn't a big deal until the U.S. ordered their capture by, by Mexican and U.S. special forces. And they swept the entire family in one day. Okay. And the time frame wise, again, was I assume this was like during the war on drugs that, that all this was kind of going on? Correct. Okay. And then essentially once that family was kicked out, it was just a vacuum for, for violence gangs and the yes, like. kidnappings, violent crime, everything that you never saw in Tijuana, a lot of kidnappings, a lot. Friends of mine were kidnapped. Family members were kidnapped. One mm -hmm. of my uncles was kidnapped. So that was, that, that never happened before. So the vacuum was, was a great vacuum. Now the drugs didn't stop either. On the contrary, profit increased for the narcos. 
So capturing one or two people doesn't work. Uh, mm-hmm. It's 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 supply chain and economics. And sometimes in the war drugs, we forget that it's supply chain, supply and demand. It's the economic part, and supply chain is the what's going to dictate the profit to to these narcos and for for there's a great book called narco narconomics that explains how when you when the u.s increases for every dollar the the war on drugs the profit goes up by the same percentage to the drug cartels so and i i know we're digressing a little bit but what would you say if i yeah if, if i could ask i mean what's the solution there because I mean, this is just such a, a huge thing. It's an international issue, of course, you know, that we want to try and get, get our hands around and have control over. Uh, you know, it's, it's devastating yeah. to to youth and folks all around the world. But like you said, you know, we can increase yeah. the spending. We can increase the enforcement. We can declare war on drugs. We can do these things. Maybe in some areas it works. In other areas, it can have unintended consequences, like in Tijuana. Yes. I mean, what what do you do? How do you address the issue? Well, I, I believe in, in economics and in supply chain, uh, partly because my background is in wholesale distribution, but also because I was born in in Tijuana at the border, which, which was the number one point for crossing drugs into the U.S. I've seen and in a previous life helped drug addicts both on both sides uh, in my youth. I, I did that uh, on the weekends. Uh, I was a, a missionary since I was 15. So I saw it firsthand and I helped, I tried to help some of these families firsthand. I am convinced that like most things in the world, this is a supply chain and an economic problem, but let, let's see it from a, from a, supply and demand perspective this is clearly a supply and demand problem right now the problem is no longer cocaine for example or pot because pot is legal in california right now the problem is pills so the big addiction that we have in the u.s is from pills from prescribed pills that then they cannot find prescribed and they look for the street vendor to supply them and then they're coming from Mexico, South America, and they're coming from Asia as well. The problem is some of these pills are killing our kids because they're not made correctly or they're just poison and one dose can kill a lot of our youth. The problem is not stopping the pills from coming in because that hasn't worked uh, in 50 years. The Each drug czar that comes in has said, our war on drugs has, has not worked. What we've been doing and the money that we've been spending has not worked 1%. Not 1%. Nothing has worked even 1%. Sure, a lot of times they put in the news, we captured a million dollars worth, yes. And that's a tiny, 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 that's probably one hour's worth of traffic that came through. How about the other 23 out? Well, they came through. Well, then you, then you didn't do anything. It was just for the picture and the news. So the solution is the same solution that we see in business and, and in, in other countries with 
economic problems. We have to address the demand. That's the solution. We have to address the demand. Even the, the economists are looking at the supply problem and the demand problem, and they will tell you in every report that you see substantial differences when you can address the demand. The problem is that it doesn't make the news. Spending money and having more guns at the border because now it's becoming militarized. So having more guns and sending more money is easier and it makes the news and it makes politicians happy. However, it doesn't make an impact in our kids, in our economy or in the drug problem. Well, I think the real talking point right now isn't so much just the the drugs that are flowing over the southern border, but it's just the the people, you know, the yes. the immigration issue, probably more so at this point than a drug issue. Um, but going back to the drugs, because it does seem like it's kind of like whack a mole, where you know you you can go capture the the Pablo Escobar, and it's this yes. gigantic victory. It's so happy we we finally did it. But then it's just kind of who's up next and, and somebody can kind of fill that void. And and then we just hit the reset button in, in a way. So I think the demand side, uh, controlling that just simply comes back to education, does it not? It does. Exactly. It's, it's education, it's alternatives, is shock therapy sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, it's mostly education and having alternatives for kids that are not drugs that can give them something that they can feel something for me it was sports as a youth for some kids it's sports but some kids they need something else yeah okay and and the immigration uh another big topic of course uh and same same thing it's right now it's very political and that's why we see it a lot Uh, when i was growing up and even before, the U.S. would send trucks to Mexico or buses to Mexico, begging people to come mm-hmm. uh, because they needed hands, especially in the field. They needed hands. They still need hands, so they're still asking for the workers. But now it's politicized, so they're not letting them through. But they're still asking for the workers. Right now, in the U.S., we have a big demand problem for, for labor. For every two jobs... There's one applicant. So that's a big problem that we have uh, that w- could be addressed with immigration. However, because it's a, it's a, it's a bad word right now, uh, it's being yeah. politicized as well. Do you? Th- <laughs> There's just so many questions on the subject because like you said, it's yes. being politicized. It's a hot button issue. Um, if I could pose to you, Jorge, I mean, what might be a solution where you're seeing illegal immigration is through the roof right now we all know that we don't and and it seems like when you have it in it's not like it comes equally to all 50 states everybody has their fair share of new immigrants that they have to fold into their economy it can just get inundated into this kind of funnel that could be in california or texas and and then I think some of these economies, these infrastructures say, you know, what do we do? We, we don't have the resources. Yeah. We don't know where to, to then move them next and the jobs to fill and so on and so forth. So it's, it's such a huge issue. And I feel like you have different sides of the coin from put up a wall and just say we're closed for now to, well, let's just kind of erase the rules and say everybody's welcome in. Everybody's a citizen. Where in between that huge divide can we find common ground? Sure. 
I think it's also a supply and demand problem. I think it's also a problem of economics. If we don't have supply or if we don't have demand for labor, they wouldn't be coming into the U.S. So that's a that's a big um, that's a big issue right now. Now immigration, it's not through the roof. It's just that we see the news through the roof about immigration. For example, Mexican-American immigration is negative right now into the U.S. It's negative. So when, when we think that it's a big problem, it's a big problem because they're leaving, <laughs> not because they're coming. The big problem that we have in the U.S. in immigration is that we have negative immigration. That's the big problem. We didn't have negative immigration before. Immigrants, more immigrants uh, but, are leaving the U.S. than coming in, right? So that's a big I don't know. Problem. I find that, that hard to believe because I think I don't think there's any one that would dispute right now if the border is getting flooded in one direction, it's coming up north. Yes. However, when when people leave, they don't flood. There's no cameras. They just quietly walk through the border back home. There's a study conducted. It's been conducted by. 30, uh, for 30 years now, the tracks mm -hmm. immigration from Mexico to the U.S. And they, they track the same people and then their families and their immigration patterns. So they, they go, they talk to people, they find where they are, and then they follow them for 30 years. They take blood. Uh, they ask them questions about uh, their, their family, their work, everything. And this is how they track immigration patterns. And then there's the local immigration patterns that are studied here at the border. Before, this is what happened before. Before, the immigration was quiet immigration. They went through and they had different avenues to cross the border. So it wasn't in the news, but people were crossing. People were crossing, finding jobs, places to stay, and then they would give word back to their families now, this is present because, like I said before, this started with the Bracero program where the, where, where the U.S. would send people. My, my father-in-law came to, to the U.S. this way. They went to his little ranch in Jalisco, up in the mountains, way, way remote. They went with, with uh, buses, and they said, whoever knows how to work the land, get in the bus, and you're guaranteed a green card on the way. We'll process your green, green card. That sounds crazy for us to us right now, right? That somebody yep. would do the thing. It's crazy. Well, back then it wasn't politicized. They needed the workers. Sure. The the U.S. Um, the the American-born workers didn't want to be a hand in the field, so they had to go out of the country, bring them in. You couldn't do that now, mm -hmm. right? That would be almost impossible to do that. Those people had kids, and then those people brought more people. Right now, there's still a demand for workers, and that's what, why they're coming. Now, a lot of the things that we see in the news are caravans of uh, people looking for political asylum, which is different from the regular immigration that we've seen over the last 50 years into the U.S. So these are that's, refugees. If, that's what I wanted to ask, too, Jorge. I know a part of it is we're coming to America for the American dream or because there's jobs. Yes. But then the other part of that equation is uh, who are, are fleeing their their situation, whether it be in Central America or, you know, yes. where some of the caravans that you just alluded to where they come from. I'm sure a lot of them, most of them want jobs, but 
it's what's the bigger motive is it to find that new role or is it just getting the heck out of wherever it is i am right now that perhaps is not safe i think it's perhaps it's not safe and, and they're political immigrants now if you're a political immigrant from cuba again because it's politicized you're guaranteed entry into the u.s guaranteed you touch the ground they can't touch you right mm-hmm. venezuela it's not in that um, court right now so a lot of people from venezuela are in these caravans uh, trying to get political asylum from the u.s and this is part of the problem. They come in a caravan. The caravan is organized politically, but they're not organized in how, how they're going to cross the border. Before, when there were no caravans and people would come 10 at a time, 20, 100, 1,000 at a time, they just crossed the border illegally. And it was easy because it was, you didn't have the huge caravan coming at the same time. Uh, in other words, it never made the news because there were 10, 20, 30 at a time coming in. It's making the news now because they have caravans that are politically organized and they're inviting the news to come and have coverage. And now you need to process a thousand people at the same time and that's very difficult. Before, when they were leaking in for for jobs, there was no processing. You didn't have to process them. They would just go cross the border, go get their job, do their job until they can get their green card or, or their work permit. We never mm-hmm. knew. Uh, I, I know of them because I know a lot of them personally or they open up to me if I go eat in. I went, I went to eat in a, in a private club in New York. One of my clients invited uh, Sandro and I. This is, you have to pay to play four stories, beautiful uh, music playing with live bands. The waiter of this fancy club, uh, I, I noticed he was Mexican, so I started speaking Spanish. And immediately he opened, oh, I came illegally. My whole family came illegally. I just got my permit a month ago. And this is one of the fanciest clubs in New York. My mm-hmm. point of this is you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know they're illegal or not now because it's politicized. Of course, you know, all of these people are illegals. So again, then we have to dive into why are they coming? And, and, and that's a, that's a bigger, a bigger story uh, and more of of politics. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And I just wanted to kind of get some of your insight because I know it is a huge um, issue that that's very nuanced and there's a lot that we could have a whole episode just on that. Oh, but I want to. I, I I actually wrote a book on it. It's <laughs> it's called the Latino Vote. So I did quite a bit of research. Okay. This is why I have it in, in the tip of my tongue. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though the, the book was written a few years ago, I still remember a lot of the research that I did for the book. Yep, and it, it's also and it's good that we have these books that sometimes I wouldn't say that they pose different sides, but they're different viewpoints. Where yes. your your book was called the Latino Vote, you said. Yes. Yep. And then, and I came out with a book last week called what should I do with my money? But the first chapter is on population. And you see here in the States, you know, we're at about 330 million people in America and our growth right now isn't so much intrinsic. You know, our families are having less and less kids, which each year that goes by, um, but we do have immigration and and that has been uh, for, for the history of the U S kind of a shot in the arm where we're able to attract talent and, uh, you know, knowledge from around the globe. 
so it's it's interesting to kind of see these things and and how they're unfolding and it's like we have the resources there the supply there i guess it's constantly using it and figuring out how to optimize it within an economy that is the challenge yes so it's yeah a lot a lot to go over there and people can check out both books to learn more but i wanted to ask you jorge taking a step back so you are in tijuana you're a u.s citizen living in tijuana now you decide that you want to go to school and study business and you went to school in california correct to college yes i i i started at a community college and then i transferred to san diego state okay all right terrific and were there the same opportunities in tijuana or in mexico at the time or did you know that education you had to come up to california to you know that that's a very interesting question when i was in school I went to private school in Tijuana, even though even though we were poor, my mom worked at a school. So I so I so I started going to the most difficult school, private school in Tijuana. So I, I was taking twelve subjects per semester, and the Greek and Latin and applied calculus, organic chemistry required, not AP or anything. When when you come back then, if you came from Mexico they would, you would skip one or two grades when you came from Mexico to the U.S. You would skip one or two grades because Mexican education was at a higher level. But then when you came to college, college education in the U.S. was at a much higher level than Mexico. So it, it, it flipped. I mm -hmm. originally wanted to study business, but I changed my major. Well, actually, I studied business, but I didn't graduate with the with the major in business, but I did study it. And I was about to finish my MBA when I left for an, an opportunity in Europe. But that's, that's how, that's how it played out. Now I, I had to come to the U S because I needed to live in California in order to get residency and then be able to go to school without paying as a foreigner. Okay. I made this decision over a weekend. My uncle, who lived in, in the U.S., came to me on a Friday and said, you know you're a U.S. citizen? I said, no. You know you can study in the U.S.? I said, no. He said, the, the U.S. universities are the best in the world, and people from China come, people from Mexico come, people from Europe come. You should think it over because you can study in the U.S. So before then, my entire life in my mind was in Mexico. School, the path that I needed for success, especially at that point, my goals were to retire my mom and my grandma, who worked two jobs. My grandma was a door-to-door salesperson, sold business cards and other printables to businesses uh, throughout Tijuana. Every day, the whole day, my mom had two jobs, went to school at night to get her, her bachelor's. So then I thought, okay, in the U.S. they pay more than in Mexico. I can accomplish my goal of retiring my mom and my grandma. Mm -hmm. Getting water, getting electricity, getting water, and then getting hot water because <laughs> those were two-year goals. So then I thought about it, and then on, on Sunday, and then my, my uncle said, of course, you can come live with me, which was the big catalyst right because if you don't sure. have a place to stay that can be difficult yeah so on sunday so, I, if i, I could I, just jump I, in jorge was, was so you you were going to a private school in tijuana so you were kind of ahead of the curve 
and then yes. you were able to then go to American University. Was that a common track? Like were a lot of your classmates and, and buddies that you had grown up with, was that a goal or was that something that your uncle introduced that was really kind of like a novel concept? It was a novel concept that I've never heard in my life okay. before. It wasn't Got on it. my radar. I never considered it. I already knew the university that I was going to next in, in after graduating. I already had my plan. It was a tough plan because in Mexico, minimum wage is about $50 per week. And and you can start with the, with the degree at $100 or $150 a week with the bachelor's, maybe $200 a week. So, so even just getting electricity in would have been $10,000. So you can see how that, that does, the math doesn't add up. It's going to take you uh, a decade to have electricity. So what I thought I needed to do is I thought I needed to be a CEO. When mm -hmm. I was you know, 14, 15, before that, I wanted to be a missionary. I was a missionary. So I had my missionary track. Okay. A writer. I always wanted to be a writer. So I say, I can be a writer and a missionary. Go to the mountains of Mexico, help the Native Americans. That was my goal until I saw that we were poor. Because when, when you're a kid and you have the love that you need, sometimes you don't realize that you're poor. But once I realized we were poor, I said, I need to do something about it. And then I started, okay, CEO, I didn't know you could be an entrepreneur, of course. In Mexico, that, that wasn't taught. Uh, so I thought, what's the, what's the highest level that you can reach? CEO, well, I guess I'll, I'll be a CEO. That was the catalyst. My uncle, okay. my goal being a CEO, and then the belief that, yes, I would get a better education in the U.S. That's awesome. And just if I could, I mean, it sounds like you had a... I don't want to say lucky, but you were blessed that you had some people to kind of guide you on a good track. A lot of your friends that were going to the school with you as you grew up, you know, what came of them? Like you say that it was, it was difficult, you know, living where you lived. It was difficult to get to college in Mexico yes. and, and there was a gap in the, the cost and what people were making. So what did those folks do after primary school? Sure. Well, I, I only came to, to the U.S. In, in, uh, for college. I had to come my last year of high school because I, I, I needed the residency. So I left the school in, in the summer before my senior year in high school. So I, I went with a lot of these students since first grade to school because okay. uh, that's, that's the way, like in the U.S., right? You, if you don't move, you stay with the same group. So I, I knew everybody since I was six or seven years old. Some of them, some before, because Tijuana used to be a, a really small place. So I knew a lot of these kids from my mom. My mom knew their parents. My mom used to sell dresses that she bought in LA, in Los Angeles, and brought to Tijuana and sold dresses house to house to rich uh, people in Tijuana. So I knew, uh, I knew some of these kids because my mom would uh, sell them dresses to their moms. Uh, and, but, but these were rich kids. A lot yeah. of them had a chauffeur, so a, another level of wealth. Um, I'm still in contact with them. A lot of them went into their family business. A lot of them are doctors, lawyers. Most of them, if not all of them, graduated college. Some of them 
came to the U.S. I just, I, we just had a, I, I still keep, the most that I keep in contest, in, in contact is with this group that I had of missionary kids because mm -hmm. I belong to a missionary group at school. So we still keep in contact and we meet each other um, about every other month. So when I last saw them, one of them came back. She sat next to me in high school. She was a tenured professor at New York University for uh, engineering. And now she's That's a great. tenured professor at UCSD for materials. So she was working on, on the materials for satellites and the materials for pod in Mars. Wow. So a rocket scientist, in other words. <laughs> it did so pretty well. The yep. that I went to in, 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 in high school were the smartest people I've known in my life. And I thought, I, and I felt bumped because I didn't get good grades. These were all A students. I didn't realize that the level was so high of, yeah. of difficulty, of course, because it's what you know. So I remember always thinking, these kids are rocket scientists. I'm sorry, but it's difficult yeah. to compete with rocket scientists. And turns out they were rocket scientists. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's just that the ones <laughs> that came cool. to the Real rocket scientists, the ones that yep. stayed in Mexico, were at Sony, Panasonic, Black and Decker, all of these international firms that are established in Tijuana. And on that point, so the education system—it sounds like you were there at a pretty good time. And then, like we talked about at the beginning of this episode, that you know, once that family that had total control over Tijuana kind of got the boot, and then there was this unfortunate vacuum in the city. Yes. Did that affect education or, or was that somehow insulated from some of the mayhem that transpired? You know, that, that's an, another very thoughtful question. It did affect education, but not the way you would think. It affected education because they built schools. And when they left, nobody else built schools. So they were building schools and putting in infrastructure for the roads and electricity and other things for those schools. When they... Mm -hmm. When they were captured, the other people that came in didn't care about the community. So then it was more destruction. And the other way it affected education is parents were afraid to send their, their, their kids to school with this new violence. Uh, parents were afraid to send them to basketball practice uh, because everybody walked, right? I, wa I walked, I had to go twice to school. So I walked four to five miles per day every day since I was seven years old. So that... I still walked after this happened, but now I was afraid of violent crime when I was walking mm -hmm. through this city. Wow. Yeah. It's, it, it, there's so many different dynamics kind of at play here. Uh, sometimes yes. things that you take for granted. So then we fast forward and, and you were able to, to get here to the States. You got a great education at San Diego state. And did you go straight into the entrepreneurial track or did you have any early mentors or, what I guess was a kind of a tipping point of sorts from then to here. Sure, I've always loved art. My my family, it's all artists, no no entrepreneurs. My mom uh, currently is a painter. She teaches children to paint. Uh, she she's a sculptor. She just I just published and edited her first children's book. Susie, oh, cool. it's about. Uh, and the world of ants told with the story. 
her student, which is fabulous, illustrated the book. Uh, so that was that was fabulous, and the book is fabulous. Uh, every every page is a work of art. Uh, so cool. coming from the arts, I went into business, but started taking half business courses, half art courses, because of my love to art uh, of art. I still knew I was going to work in business, but the business courses were very boring. There were no entrepreneurial courses, so I had to take what you could imagine. The courses that you take so that you can work for somebody else, accounting, finance, but not for your own business. This was all for other businesses. The case studies that you get in business school are rarely from entrepreneurs. The, the, the case studies that you get are from IBM or from Ford. Yep. So you, you don't get inspiration. Oh, this entrepreneur did it so I can do it. Even the visitors that they brought, the professors brought speakers, no entrepreneur speakers. They were all employees teaching us how to get a job or how to hone in on our interviewing skills, things like that. So on my own, I was trying to learn how to be an entrepreneur. I tried to start little businesses here and there and failed at all of them, but I was trying. And as you know, in the U.S., you're not only expected to fail, but failure is good when it becomes to business. And this is where I have a little bit of a problem with education and the educational system where failure is bad. Getting an F is bad. However, in business, getting an F and trying, you might get an A for effort, maybe not this time, but probably the next time. So yeah. the U.S. is different in many ways, and this is one of them. The U.S., in the entrepreneurial world, expects you to fail, expects you to, to fail forward, so falling forward, so that yep. you can get up. Oh, that was a lesson. Yep. <laughs> yep. Whether it was a good one or a bad one, that was a lesson. Good. Now I'm not going to do that again, and you keep going. In Mexico, not so much. And then in school, you flunk out if that happens more than a couple of times. Yeah. So. Mentors, absolutely. I think because of mentors, I finished school. Because of mentors, I got interested in writing. And because of mentors, it fast-tracked my career from I wasn't able to, to get a job after college. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have connections. My family was all in Mexico. I didn't know how to interview. I couldn't get internships. I couldn't get minimum wage jobs. Two, vice president in a year, a year later. So unemployed, not able to get a job, and then one year later, I was vice president of a company. That doesn't happen normally. I had somebody there. They came in, plucked me from the U.S. now, took me to Germany, and then I was able to succeed in that company. It was a software company, ERP company, big, you know, big installations. And yep. I went to Europe for a year, and I worked for that company for two years, making it to CEO of U.S. operations. And at 26 or 20, almost 27, was able to retire my mom and my grandma with my with my first paycheck. That's awesome. That's great. And then when, so it, it sounds like you had that entrepreneurial itch when you got out of college. Yes. Tried a couple of things here or there. It was obviously tough to work out. And then you caught this break and you were able to climb the ladder of corporate America. Now, yes. when did you leave that type of position 
to be cut to get to where your real goal was. Sure. And and now something interesting here. Um, I was in love with with influence since I was maybe fourteen. I I studied influence. I, I started with religion. I was I was obsessed with how religions can have influence in society for thousands of years and how they did it. Later on, I learned that all of this that I've studied since I was fourteen, you put a dollar amount and you call it marketing. Yeah. Right. So when I when I went to to when I graduated college, I already had 10, 12 years of experience in influence. It's just that it wasn't for dollars. It was for helping people get out of drugs or for convincing people to leave the street and go to a shelter. But it's still marketing. I just yep. didn't know it was marketing. So then marketing became very easy and natural for me because I was I already saw it from another perspective, not from a selling perspective, but from a value perspective. So then going into marketing and going into entrepreneurship was very easy. Now, from this company, and, and by the way, this, this gentleman that plucked me, his name is Christian or was Christian Hoffman. He became one of my best friends, as you can imagine. And he died when he was in his 40s. I was in my 30s, so he died uh, about uh, uh, 12, 14 years ago, he passed. But we became very close friends. My wife and I would visit him once a year. He would visit us once per year from, from Europe. Uh, he, he not only gave me the opportunity, but installed a German work ethic that is beyond comprehension. Because the way those guys worked when I was there was incredible. So then it wasn't hard to succeed because I had the work ethic. And remember, remember I, I mentioned that my commute was four hours each way. Well, I decided to spend that in, in a bus or public transportation university. Back then, I had my Walkman, if you remember those. Yeah, and, my of and then I had audiobooks or books on tape before, yep. right? Remember? tape so i would buy encyclopedias of books on tape that's how i spent all of my money in encyclopedias of books on tape philosophy not not just business but philosophy anthropology history influence religion and yes business motivation and inspiration that's the cool. best speakers in the world series all of this so when i when i was able to when i got the, the, the shot because nothing none of this if you don't get the shot, uh, then you can't shoot the shot, right? Somebody has to pass yep. you the ball. So when they pass sure. me the ball, I had maybe, I don't know, hundreds of books, hundreds of books. And in my mind, my superpower was being able to get this information in theory, turn around and apply it immediately without, without having the experience. So I always said, this author went through all of the trouble to make all these mistakes and then teach about him, tell me about him. I will disrespect him if I make the same mistakes. Yep, exactly. Right? That's the that, way I thought. Yep, it's like it's almost, you know, better to learn from others' mistakes than your own. <laughs> you know, why exactly. go through the pain if you don't have to? Exactly. Yeah. But you have to plan this, right? It doesn't happen naturally. Sure. Uh, I went to answer your question fully. I went to another software company as a vice president. And yeah. then at 30, I decided, okay, that's enough. I need to own my time. 
because I was making the money, more money than I thought I would make in, in my life as, an, as an, a corner office software executive. And I said, okay, that's enough of that. I already hit all my goals before 30. I had all of my goals were already done except for owning my time. And this is when I decided it's time to be an entrepreneur. Yep. And that's the question I wanted to ask is, so when you said it's time to make the switch, did you stick in the, the lane of software or did you totally take your skill set and what you had learned and apply it to like an, an entirely new field? Because right now, I mean, you have these two publicly traded companies, Hempaco and Green Globe International. I don't think that we would define them as a software company. <laughs> <laughs> that's correct. You, you know, something interesting that happened. I didn't know how to start a business and I didn't really know how to be an entrepreneur. So what I, I did was I, I bought a business. I, I bought a business that was already cash flowing because I didn't have a lot of savings. I needed, and when I mean a lot, I had enough money to buy the company, but then I didn't have money to live uh, after I bought the company. So I needed to generate the cash flow to live from the cash flow. And that same year I got married. So both my wife and I worked in the business. She was also an executive and quit her job to be an entrepreneur with, with me. I bought a wholesale distribution company in San Diego that sold tools, $1.98 cents tools in racks. It was called bargain baskets. So you put the tools in the racks uh, white metal racks, and then you put the racks at 7-Eleven, Circle K, the liquor store in the corner, etc. That's the business that I bought. Huh, interesting. And then did that work out, or how did that unfold? Like, is that one that you bought with the intent to sure. build it up and then resell it, or was that? No, I I, I wasn't that sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you could do that. No, I I bought it because I wanted so badly to own a business and I didn't really think it through. Uh, if I would have thought it through, I would have started a business, probably a software business. Now, I, I, I was reading the paper every day for about three years looking for businesses. And then even though I wasn't buying the businesses, I would call and negotiate for the purchase of the business to get the practice and to see what, what, what it was like. So, so, I saw the paper and I found this business and it was maybe, well, I called every single business that I saw in the paper. So I don't know how many dozens of calls <laughs> I made, but this was one that actually made sense. It wasn't just somebody pumping up their company. Uh, it was a, an older gentleman that was in the business. He, he had bargain baskets for 20 years. So he had good faith with these stores for 20 years. And he would import the tools himself. He taught me the business. I know it was completely out of my wheelbarrow. However, from software, I had a lot of best practices and procedures because it's all pra best practices and procedures. I was able to bring that into this industry that was more the grandfather owned the business, then the, the son worked in the business, and then the 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 son of the son worked the business. So this is what I saw out there. Both retailers were like this and wholesalers were like this. So very old best practices that I was able to change and then double the business immediately. 
the gentleman that sold me the business, his name was Marshall Shields. He came out of retirement, put a million dollars in, and we took it to 17,000 stores with, with the same best practices that I had. Really, not a lot has changed. And we right now, our business model is the same business model for wholesale distribution I'm talking about that I had 20 years ago when I bought this business. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> I guess if it works, it works. And, and, and not only that, that was my wholesale distribution university. I, I got this incredible mentor that had been doing it for, well, he had bargain baskets for 20 years, but he was in this business for 40 years when I met him. He was 60 yeah. something when I met him. So I got 40 years of education from a mentor one-on-one -on -one, every single day. This is how you do it. This is how it works. This is how you open the store. This is how you keep the store. This is how you land the distributor, right? All of yep. this. And then I, I brought other things like being able to sell to Walgreens and Walmart and Target and 7-Eleven that I figured out on, by my own yep. to grow exponentially, scale. negotiate better practices, better supply chain, all of these things that you need that he didn't have mm -hmm. that I brought from the software world. So that yep. was a yeah, the new school and the old school coming together. With Marshall. That's great. And so, and was, last question. By the way, I developed products when I was there. I developed a thousand, a thousand fast-moving consumer goods. Wow. With Marshall, so now you can imagine our job now is developing products and putting them in stores. That's that's great, and that leads me into the last question I wanted to ask. You've had a a journey that you're able to to maintain the same skill sets and apply them to a variety of different practices. And now yes. all of a sudden, here we are in 2023. And the reason I really want to ask is a lot of our listeners out there are entrepreneurs. They understand marketing, networking in the modern era of influence. And you're working with Rick Ross and with Snoop Dogg and folks like this. How did you get into those circles? Sure. It's not hard. Uh, it, we, we have factories. We have three factories, two factories in San Diego, one factory in Tijuana. In Tijuana, I mentioned we do paper. In San Diego, mm -hmm. we do hemp cigarettes and we do nutraceuticals. We have okay. uh, in, in GGII, we have a factory to manufacture vitamins, gummies, tinctures, skincare. The, the hardest partner to get was Snoop Dogg by far. Rick Ross was easy because, because we partnered with James Lindsay, an incredible entrepreneur that owns Wrap Snacks, which is a chip, potato chip company that sells with wrappers in the cover. So he already knew Rick Ross. Rick Ross is his partner. So we got Rick Ross because Jim Lindsay was, was our partner. We developed him okay. up with it. He has 42 distributors all over the U.S., national distribution like that. So we not alone, we got Rick Ross, but then we got 42 distributors, which is unheard of. That's so that was win. easy. Yeah. We sent the press release, Chichin Chang called us and said, hey, I hear you're the guys. Can we work with you? It was that easy. We said, <laughs> sure. <laughs> now, Snoop Dogg was not that easy. I, I have clipping subscriptions to clipping services where you can do this easily without a clipping service if you go to Google News and you subscribe to keywords. You can subscribe to your keyword, the name of your podcast. Every time 
something gets picked up by 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 Google or by Google News, you will get an email notification. Yeah, yeah I'm familiar with. Well, that. I have that, and then I have another level of that, which is called a clipping service. Now they they do more than that. When if you file something in a in a patent office, I might get a notification if I'm okay. following you. Uh, if if I if you tweet about something, I might get the notification as well, et cetera. So what happened now was I got a notification that Snoop Dogg had, he's big into the metaverse and NFTs, and he was applying for a trademark for the metaverse for him cigarettes. And I got this notification from a, my clipping service, and I said, oh, my God, he's ready. Because we tried to contact him in the past, yeah, and it was no, no, no. We didn't get to the right person. So then, what I did is I called my my business development manager, Brent Elden, wonderful individual, go getter, and I said, and I and I forward this, and I said, okay, we're gonna try this differently. Don't go to the business manager, don't go to the agent, don't go to any of these normal channels, because normal. Act will get will get you normal results. So you have to do things that are completely out of the box if you want those results. And this is for everything that you do, not just in business, right? In sports and anything, you have to do extraordinary things to get extraordinary results. So what what I suggested was to start stalking all the, <laughs> some of the employees. So we started with LinkedIn, which is actually my favorite social media network. Uh, platform i have like 10 groups that i manage with some with a hundred thousand members and i have a huge following there so it's easy to connect with people for me on linkedin so then i said don't follow the agents or all of these high profile people follow the people who actually make the sales who actually get on planes follow follow them and contact them through linkedin and it'll be easy because that's their job so then we got to the right person, a business development, product creation type uh, person, Tiffany. Incredible. The, the, one of the things I have to say about Snoop, his team is amazing in every way. They're kind, which is something rare and something I look for in my partners. I want people to yeah. be kind. And she is There's so no kind. And so this was through job. LinkedIn. That That is essentially where the connection transpired it was on linkedin to someone that worked in his inner circle and then to snoop she was in la she came the next week to see us she toured the factory as the as, as the tour finished my our, our factory is incredible so she went through the factory got out and said you're my guys just like that i this is it's the it's the best factory i've seen in my life it's done the deal's done that's great just like that huh that is so cool it's amazing with with technology and with these social media channels who you can connect to, to kind of just like this conversation happened. Yes. So, Jorge, this has been fantastic. I want to finish, especially with what we call the lightning round. And yes. this is when I just fire some questions at you. You tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Are you on board for that? I am. All right. So here we go. Number one, what is your favorite movie? Star Wars. I love it. Okay. Number two, your favorite book. 
That is a very difficult question because it depends on my mood. It depends on what I'm doing. But I will give you one of my favorite books, and I will divide fiction and nonfiction as well. I read a lot, and I write uh, fiction as well. I write fantasy under pen names. Uh, I will okay. say that my my one of the greatest influences that I had from books was uh, Angelus Body, Timeless Mind by Deepak Chopra that I read in my youth. It started me with meditation 20 years ago. Now it's in vogue with breathing and breath work, but sure. also in longevity. So I started early thinking about longevity. So that was my one of my favorite self-help books. And okay. then I read a lot of I read a, a, about a book a, a week. I used to read a book a day uh, in my commute, so it's tough, yeah, it's yeah. tough to pick one. But I'll pick that one because the consequences of that book right now are in fashion, which is meditation and breathing. Got it. And did you have a hero growing up? If so, who? I had multiple heroes growing up. Now, as a kid, one time I walked... I woke up like at two o'clock in the morning and I went to the bathroom and I saw my mom reading, studying for college at candlelight at two o'clock in the morning because we didn't have electricity. When I saw that, this is why I was able to commune, commute eight hours to school and succeed as an entrepreneur, as, a, as an athlete, as a writer. Because when you see that as a child, mm -hmm. something changes with your neurology. You get some sort of synapses in your brain that says, there's no excuse anymore. What, what's That's your right. excuse? Oh, it's raining and I have to walk to school. Hey, you didn't have to have a kid and read a candlelight at 2 o'clock yeah, in the morning. Exactly. So, yeah. so my mom growing up was, was definitely my hero. And then That's it changed beautiful. awesome. and writers. But my mom, uh, still to this day, my mom... If you, if you speak with her today, she will tell you, Brian, what a coincidence, because today's the best day of my life. I saw this bird outside that looked at me, and it was so wonderful, and I read the best book I've ever read, and I saw the best movie ever, like every day. Like, yeah, very positive life. outlook. That's great. Even today. Even today yeah. it's like and that. do you have a favorite quote to live by? I, again, I have a lot of quotes. In, in Mexico, you have a lot of ancient quotes. And my grandma was the queen of quotes. For everything, she would, she would <laughs> throw at you a, an old 100-year-old quote. Uh, and I would have to think, because I also read a lot of quotes. I enjoy a lot of quotes from, from Marcus Aurelius in, her, in his meditations. He has mm -hmm. some incredible quotes that apply to business, to life, to everything. Um, I, have, I, I like a lot of quotes by Einstein as well and, and other people uh, let me think of of one at least from my grandma uh, and then when i i would i would prank my grandma a lot and then she would call me about she she didn't use foul language but i tried to to prank her enough that she would use foul language with me <laughs> that was my goal <laughs> um, i i can't think of a single that's fine uh, one, one single quote because there's so many in my brain sure uh, but I, I Einstein and I, Marcus Aurelius. So. Yes. Okay. And the last question for you, you've obviously traveled a lot, born in Mexico, 
uh, living in the U.S., spent a lot of time in the U.S. and in Germany and Europe. What is your favorite destination or vacation? Sure, and and I just came from the south of Mexico, and before that, I went to the Galapagos Islands, which was a, a, a dream of mine since I were since I read um, Darwin. However, I would have to say that at the moment, because again, that has changed over the years, but at the moment, I want to go back to the south of France and stay there for three or four months, finish a couple of my books that I have that I haven't been able to finish. Uh, so at the moment, I want to go back to the south of France, yeah. uh, where I made a wonderful trip with my wife and I said, oh, yeah, I have to come back. So that's still uh, fresh that's... in my mind. The food was amazing <laughs> in these little towns. I know. I did a cruise so there probably... too. Uh, yep. To Nice and Monaco. And it it is out of oh. this world. Yep. Yes. Yes. All right. This was great. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jorge. Where can people find you if they want to learn a little bit more, get some of your insights? Uh, where sure. can they follow you? Well, my 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 handles, my personal website, it's all easy because it's my name, Jorge Olson. So jorgeolson.com. I have my books there, links to my books. Uh, I just finished writing Build Your Beverage Empire third edition, which is going to come out next month. The links for everything are there. The links for my publicly traded companies are also there. So they can go there and then find me everywhere. My links to my social media is also there in JorgeOlson.com. And it's Jorge Olson everywhere, my handles as well. Perfect. Perfect. Well, everyone, thank you again for tuning into another episode of the Kaderna podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. Today, I've been joined by Jorge Olson. What a conversation. We covered a lot of ground there. Maybe we'll have a round two at some point in the future. Uh, but Jorge, thanks again for your time. Brian, it's my pleasure. You're very welcome. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.